Welcome to Coffee House. So we have not done the American Marxism discussion yet. I am holding off a bit because I actually want to read that damn thing again. And because we had an interim book, a Svishinsug, I think is the name for it. I actually don't know if that's the right one. We have an interim book that I read as part of a book club, so I wanted to kind of knock that one out in between. But I now have read it about like two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, so I'm not sure how much I'm going to remember as we're going through this because we had the whole issue with the website going down. We're going to do it, though. Didn't have a traditional introduction, but we're going to do it. This was David French. David French has lost his party. He's a never-Trumper who used to be a Republican. He He's religious, but tries to function in an increasingly secularized country. And he wrote a book. It's called Divided We Fall. It's published 2020. This is very recent. This was right before the 2020 election, however. The subtitle is America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. So as always, we will go through the contents of this book. We'll do a bit of analysis where we talk about the qualities and lack thereof. And then we'll do some big picture stuff, try to fold it into our wider understanding of the world, who we are, where we're going, and where we ought to go. So if you're new here, we read books, bad books, good books, and talk about big ideas to mix it all up and try to create a grand unified understanding of the world at large. The contents of this particular book, Divided We Fall, like I said, this was part of a book club. The author, David French, is kind of notorious, never-Trumper in conservative circles, and he wrote this book ostensibly to try to bridge the ever-widening gap between the, uh, the poles in this country. So in the intro, he talks about how he just has no tribe. Uh, he brings up the Clintons and the not-so-youthful indiscretions of Bill. And kind of all the rumblings of whether if Hillary won the election that we would automatically be a socialist nation. And then he talks about Trump and how he was very anti-Trump and associates him with the alt-right, the Muslim bans, the extraordinary attacks on Mexican immigrants, as he put it, and the various accusations of harassment or assault by women that were pending against Trump. And early on, you kind of notice... Uh, a pulling of punches when it comes to discussing policy and rhetorical indiscretions by Democrats at this point, but we go on. So one of the things he asserts is that our country can only exist as a liberal, pluralistic republic. We're not going to have the kind of homogeneity that you get in some of the other smaller countries. You know, some of the Scandinavian countries have a kind of homogeneity. And other countries might not necessarily need a republic or have to deal with pluralism because they are so similar just in general. But in the United States, we don't have that kind of similarity. We have very disparate kinds of people that live here. So our system has to take that into account. And that's why a republic works so well. And kind of the framing of it, and I think this is maybe kind of the perfect framing of what the country ought to be, but it's rights-bearing individuals who can fashion and pursue for themselves their own version of the good life, a limited government that secures those rights, and free speech being essential as a, an ingredient in that whole situation. So rights-bearing individuals, that's kind of the, the smallest atom that needs to be a part of this liberal pluralistic republic and the limited government that's its role is simply to secure those rights. So now we go into one of the major themes that animates much of what he has to say and that's specifically about a burgeoning inclination towards civil war. So... So one of the things that he'll do is he'll kind of look at what happened before and how that led to a civil war and how that could potentially happen today. 
So he says that the mutual contempt in general is an important factor for leading up to a civil war. And a lot of the major factors that he talks about when it comes to mutual contempt are things that are simply unbridgeable. So things that end up being walls between groups. In you know our past, we had the issue of slavery. And he brings up the Nat Turner Rebellion and the ever-growing threat of slave rebellions that was kind of used as a fear-mongering tactic, apparently, as he says, at the time. And this was this despite the fact that Lincoln, as close to the Civil War as 1860, was still saying that he was not inclined to abolish slavery, and yet we still ended up in a civil war. And then one of the major reasons or foundational situations that led to it is the geographical separation, that you had two geographies that were separated enough that they could grow apart enough to lead to a civil war. So today, you have much of the same situation where people believe that they're under threat from the other side. They're angrier at domestic perceived threats than at, like, foreign dictators. So the foreign threats are not as significant to people nowadays as the domestic ones, which is, of course, of grave concern. And then here's another one where we have some uh, pulling of the punches. This was, like I said, right before the 2020 election. So this is after some pretty serious and pretty destructive and deadly situations with a number of groups. So they should have made it into into here. But uh, what he talks about here is that he, he brings up uh, white nationalist attacks and describes those in significant detail and then gives very minimal description in that he he kind of phrased it, and this really bothered me, was that he phrased it like, we can't forget the attempted assassination of Republicans at a congressional baseball game. You know, we just, we can't forget it. You know, it's there. Uh, it's it's one of those things, like I said, when it came to the, uh, the other ones, the ones on the other side that are ostensibly on the right, it was very specific descriptions and there were multiple examples. But on the other side, he didn't go into details about, you know, say the shooting in Dallas of the police officers. Other attacks or violence that could be associated on that side, uh, but went into grave detail on the other side. Uh, one point here was that we are often unaware of the violence against the other, so the violence that goes the other way, we're often unaware of it, especially now because of the way that it's treated. And this reminded me of, of one situation. So Larry Elder, he recently ran for governor of California against Gavin Newsom on the recall. And it was one of the most, in the LA Times, it was the mo one of the most egregious just violations of any idea of personal or professional ethics that I've seen when it comes to reporting on, on something like this. What had happened was Larry Elder was uh, having an event or he, he was moving somewhere. He had his security detail around him, but he was out, you know, outside amongst the people. And as they were moving, a woman in a gorilla mask rolled up on a bike and threw an egg at him. Now she missed and went like just narrowly missed his head, went over his head. But then there was an altercation uh, after that and, and all this. So obviously the other way around, if Larry Elder's, uh, he's a conservative in case that wasn't clear, but if Larry Elder were liberal and some conservative rolled up, conservative woman and rolled up in a gorilla mask and started throwing eggs at him, then it would be, you know, national news all over the place. It would be framed in a very specific way. But in this particular case, they the LA Times explicitly framed it. What they did was they said there was an altercation at a Larry Elder event, and then they used a picture where they had captured a moment where Larry Elder was going in for a hug with one of his supporters. And it was, it was somebody who he had worked with who was like helping him with his campaign, you know, one of the stops for, for his campaign. But he was going in for a hug with her and his hand as it was passing her face. When you stopped in that frame, it looked like he was like slapping her. 
her. So they explicitly took this picture to make it look like that was the altercation. So the, the headline would read, Altercation at Larry Elder Event, and you would see this picture. And so for a large number of people who would just scroll right past that, you know, just read the headline and keep scrolling, then that's what they would see. And they would get this idea of Larry Elder was assaulting people at his event rather than he was assaulted by a woman in a gorilla mask. Like I said, one of the most egregious unbelievable things. It's one thing, you know, like to have gamesmanship between politicians when it comes to playing these games. It's another thing to have journalists to be involved in this kind of a thing, even when it's uh, in subtle ways like they used to do it, where it's like, I, we slightly lean this way or that way, so we'll omit things here or say things a little nicer here. Uh, but this is, I mean, this is pure propaganda. This is a pure propagandistic efforts here that are trying to attack the other side and push an ideology. It's, it's not even slightly reserved anymore, which is unbelievably shocking and concerning. So uh, one of the theories, to get back onto what the author is talking about here, one of the theories was that there was no fracturing in the 60s, the 1960s, because there was no geographic fracturing. We The disparateness was dispersed enough amongst the population that it couldn't happen. Then we get a reference to Cass Sunstein. I th Did we read a book by Cass Sunstein at some point? I'm not sure. But there's a paper that specifically talks about the law of group motivations. And this is, of course, an important topic for people to understand. It's really frustrating that so much of academia is on one side of the spectrum, so you don't get really these studies that are trying to look at this in an objective way to the extent that we are possible as sloppy primates. But so here's here's what we've got. The law of group motivations. Cass Sunstein talks about how when people of like minds gather, they develop more extreme ideas. Now, of course, we're seeing this play out in real time. This is something that in social media, we have our ability now. And it's not just we talked about the big sort. You know, we read the big sort and talked about how people are self-segregating into like-minded communities and how that's uh, been a long-term issue. But Cass Sunstein specifically talks about how there are when they get more together, they it's a kind of egging on situation where you have this cascade effect where people become more extreme in their views by virtue of being around people who they agree with. This could be a function, obviously, of just the one-upsmanship of people in general. And so you have to make yourself stand out. You have to make yourself an individual within a group. And so you just kind of push it a little more and a little more and a little more. But the problem is that when you have social media, you can have tens of thousands, if not millions of people who are egging each other on in these very like humanity neutral ways of interacting, you know, just via text or, or whatever, or in ways that have a video that has this static interaction. And that's the way you have to interact with people. And those things, when you're able to cultivate completely the community that you interact with. You know, if you don't want people who question you or press you or try to bring in outside ideas, then you can completely exclude them from your online community. Then it's just going to make this problem worse and worse and worse and worse. One thing he said was, that, I think Sunstein said, was that the cascade effect is the way that it has happened recently is that both sides are growing extreme at the same rate. I mean, it's something that would likely objectively just be ridiculous that they happen to be growing at the same rate, but that's not something that was reflected in the Hidden Tribes study that we talked about a long time ago. It's actually that the, the left is leaving behind many of the people who are in the center here, and they're growing more extreme at a much quicker rate than the right is, which is actually moving closer to the middle. Now, this hasn't necessarily been the case historically. Obviously, it was not that long ago that uh, it was extremists on the right who were trying to get people kicked off of college campuses and censored and not be able to publish books that talked about things that they didn't like. And that's the other way around. <laughs> 
only to an nth degree when it comes to the actual politics and what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, For this particular author, the churches and the cities are kind of the core. He brings up religion a lot. That's, for him, a very important aspect of this whole situation. He thinks that white evangelical churches and the urban progressive enclaves are fundamentally at odds, and he questioned why such a large chunk of the population, the religious population, supported somebody like Trump. Obviously, he's a philanderer. He's paying off, not prostitutes, but, I mean, technically, he's probably a prostitute. Whatever that alchemy, that rhetorical alchemy you have to do but he's paying off porn stars that he slept with and all that sort of thing so it's not exactly the moral exemplar the family exemplar that would motivate christians historically but they still 81 percent voted for him so for the author he says that it must be something related to partisanship it must be their partisanship that's doing it that allows them to accept an immoral actor like this and so this is a kind of an effect of the extremism that is going on on one side that they they're able to do this together and then there's a bit of a discussion about the way that some different political issues function in this situation and how politics trumps everything and how things go from extreme to mainstream. And this is, I mean, a really important phenomenon that we haven't really seen as much. But whether it goes for sexual liberty and gun rights and um, other things, things that were were at some point considered extreme positions on this, for him it's like uh, just the free love everywhere and the way the, the idea of sex and relationships has developed over the last, you know, 20 years. And on the other side, gun rights and how those have become more and more entrenched. And again, this is one thing that we see in all of these kinds of kumbaya, let's bring everybody together books, is this false equivalence on either side. There's this, this kind of childish binary where they say, oh, no, look, we can't ascribe any more blame to one side than the other. And I think this is just completely wrong, especially at this point in history. At other points in history, it might have been the other way around, but especially now, uh, that's that's a ludicrous contention. Uh, but one thing he brings up at the end of this chapter is that, okay, whether, not Chloe, not Kim, not Kendall, who is it? Who is it? Caitlyn Jenner. Yes. Okay. So whether Caitlyn Jenner is a woman or not, this is something that he brought up. I think it was, I think it was him who brought it up in a discussion and they were all getting along and all that stuff. But whether Caitlyn Jenner is a woman or not is one of those things that is simply beyond debate. It's not something where you can find some kind of middle ground on that. So he's saying that that is kind of one of those breakage situations where you can't get around that. And there might be other issues like that. And what are you supposed to do about it? And he brings up here the Overton window uh, when it comes to gay marriage and how gay marriage went from something that's way outside. Remember, Donald Trump was the first president in history that went into office accepting gay marriage, saying that gay marriage was fine and and great and something should be supported. Barack Obama went into office saying that marriage was traditional and should be between a man and a woman. So the shift of the window has been extraordinary. It's been unbelievable. It wasn't long ago that things like DOMA were passed, the Defense of Marriage Act. And now the discussion has completely shifted. It's been, it's so far from where it was. It's, it's shocking. And then we have, uh, he goes to guns. This is usually kind of the dichotomy. Whenever it's on the right, he talks about guns. But when it comes to that, I mean, there are so many things that are just a massive disconnect between people. So he brings up the Parkland shooting and how the framing is, you know, between people who want kids dead versus people who don't want kids dead. And how kids today, 81% will say that speech can be violence. I mean, that is a completely delusional position. And 81% of younger people (laughs) say that that's perfectly fine. 
and that you can use violence to stop speech um, because you consider it violence. It's not 81% on that point, but still, it's uh, a large number of them. And then there are other issues that are brought up here. One of the things that he brought up is that free speech was cracked down in the slavery South. One of the things that they did to try to preserve that institution of slavery was they tried to crack down on free speech, not let people make the kinds of arguments that would undermine that institution. So it's really important to still have, to have that free speech, that ability to challenge those kinds of things. And then some discussion about racism, how being anti-white can't be racism, which is uh, this weird patronizing thing where they try to define discrimination as discrimination plus power, saying that's the definition. So therefore, I mean, that definition itself is so unbelievably ridiculous. Trying to define power in such a narrow way (laughs) that you would say that black people do not have it, you know, whether they are appointed attorney general of the United States or become president of the United States or just own a business or entrepreneur or make all sorts of important decisions over the course of their lives, but they don't have power because of their skin. That's ludicrously patronizing and ridiculous and infantilizing. But this is the kind of way they try to get around it. For his example, he says that, okay, when you're on the New York Times board, then you have some kind of power in this country. And it's ridiculous to say otherwise. And that we have to reject unhealthy inclinations to generalize. Now, one of the big things that he does in this book is that he creates these two scenarios to say that this is how, if we were going to have a civil war at this point in our history, that this is how it would happen. And he does it on both sides. And this was actually kind of a really interesting thought exercise that I thought seemed pretty believable, accurate, and doable. (laughs) Something that could legitimately happen. And obviously, it's easy to hyperbolize, but even just, I remember being in a book club uh, where we we were reading fiction books, but uh, one of the people there, he was from a a formerly communist country, and he was worried about Donald Trump. He was was really worried that he was going to take over, take powers, you know, that were untoward and start instituting these kind of authoritarian measures. And I kept saying that that's, I mean, that's ludicrous. We have so many um, safeguards in place all over the place that it's just not going to happen. We have a republic. We have, you know, three branches of government. We have these checks and balances just not going to happen. And the guy got, he got legitimately mad at me (laughs) and emotional about it. And uh, we almost came to blows over this discussion. Because I I mean, I knew what what Trump was and what he was likely to do or not do. I I knew what his inclination was, you know, as far as somebody can know that. And I was like, there's no way on earth this guy does it. But um, of course, now I am somewhat eating my words as you have this kind of threat on the other side where I'm not actually sure that the institutions will hold and the scenarios that we're praying that here. He did it on one side that was based on abortion, where a number of conservative states just out outlawed abortion. Uh, so California wanted to secede and um, be able to do the, whatever they wanted, you know, when it came to abortion. And then on the other side, it was gun rights where uh, something had happened. So they said, we're uh, banning all guns uh, federally. And so Texas wanted to secede. And then you have a civil war that resulted from that. And kind of the way it happened, the way it was laid out just seemed very believable on both sides. But so from what I'm seeing now, it does seem like a lot of our institutions are failing. We have in the House and the Senate, in our Congress right now, it is very, very partisan. It's one side versus the other when it comes to virtually every vote. Uh, we've only got two san- senators right now standing in the way of, of a monopoly on government power right now. And that's extremely concerning because there are some extreme things that are trying to be done on one side. And I think a much most of it has to do, the m- gravest concern about it is the merger between these uh, large tech companies and governance. I mean, that's the big idea is that when it comes to everything that's related to COVID and lockdowns and what medical misinformation is and all that sort of thing, you have these rules that 
not only just don't make sense, but they're they're arbitrary and tyrannical where they would say like certain things that the CDC said at a certain point won't be allowed on things like YouTube. You can't allow them. And things that are patently obvious, like breakthrough cases in Israel, something that's extremely obvious and can't be denied by anybody anywhere. Those kinds of things, because they might promote vaccine hesitancy, those are being suppressed on a lot of these tech companies. And you have Jen Psaki herself, the press secretary for Biden, explicitly saying that we are working with Facebook. We are working directly with a company, a social media company, to try to suppress speech that goes against what we believe to be the correct, you know, right think on these on these issues. And you have professionals all over the place who are are rejecting a lot of these things and trying to question the conclusions, especially when it comes to the doctor in chief, Anthony Fauci, and the CDC and the WHO and the conclusions that have been descended from on high from these institutions that have been proven completely wrong and sometimes extremely bad for everybody. They are still enforced and disseminated with the same vigor as a papal decree, as something from the Lord himself. So that's something that is uh, extremely concerning in our current situation. So that being the case, though, uh, that's the accelerator. That's the accelerant that's being placed on all this. And then we have all the norm breaking in the government that is is the underlying problem. There's no sense of fair game or shared sense of try to do what's best for the country. That's just gone now. And that's that's a big problem. Anyway, that's the book. Uh, there are, I'm sure, plenty of things to go on. But the, the main point is that he believes that the best way to challenge this, to push back against this, is to allow ourselves to have a republic so that we have these individual enclaves that can do whatever they want with their rules and their laws. People can choose where to live and decide, okay, I like these rules better than those rules or whatever. They can have that choice and then we can live together in our enclaves and do whatever we want to do. If Texas wants to be way different from California, they can do that. And and we can accept that. We don't need a federal government who is trying to tyrannically push states from on high and say, you have to do this and you have to do that. Are you saying that's the way that we get out of this? And that's the way that we have the right kind of country where we can have the pluralistic society that we're supposed to have. So moving into the analysis, and I'm sure this particular author referenced this, talked about this country was built for a moral and religious people. I'm sure for him, that's kind of the most important substrate. But one of the things about the book is that it seemed like it was written as if Democrats are the protagonist. It might be strategic. It might be just the point to try to make them more comfortable because they're reading a Republican or a former Republican. He doesn't have a party now, he says. So it might be a strategic move to write it in that way. But it did become frustrating in that, like I said, he pulled a lot of punches when it came to Democrats and he acted as though a lot of the points when it comes when it came to the other side would be foreign to whoever the reader happened to be. But I think it was specifically written with Democrats in mind as the protagonist of this particular story. And the book seemed more diagnosis, less prescription and I mean, this is kind of an, an epidemic when it comes to this kind of writing. Everybody gives some kind of uh, suggestions. I know in American Marxism, Mark Levin gave a number of prescriptions, said this is what you need to do, do this, do that, etc., etc. And um, this book tries to give some, says, you know, we need stronger local communities, local governance, and do whatever you want on a local level. But to some degree, it just, it seems so underwhelming at this point when it comes to any of these books, uh, trying to give us a prescription like this. And there's something meandering and kind of flabby about it. <laughs> it had this patronizing tone, like it's trying to delicately talk to children about these kinds of things. 
And it's not restricted to this book. It's not just this book. But there is this kind of tone. And it's so weird that we have to treat everybody. These are supposed to be adults. It's not four-year-olds who are picking this up and trying to figure out what to do about the country. These are supposed to be adults reading this. And we're, and they're likely going to be well-educated and um, up-to-date on most of these political issues. And still, it's like this weird, pandery, childish method of, of trying to handle people and... It's really frustrating that this is the kind of way that we have to talk about these things. So overall, I don't know. It it seems like there's a bit of a, a sheen of vacuousness when it came to what this book was and what it was written for. And I only read it once, you know. I I and I read it a couple of weeks ago. So who knows? Maybe maybe I'm off base on this. But it did kind of seem like it was not as interested in genuinely understanding what the hell's going on and trying to fix it as it was trying to make itself palatable. And to some degree, obviously, the, both of those considerations are important, but it's just, it's really frustrating to be in that situation. So big picture wise, I just feel like we need to do better. We need to be better when it comes to communication about these kinds of things. We need an entirely new method of framing our communication because there's some better way to discuss complex political and moral questions. I think one of the things that happens is that when you're on the right side, and I, I use this in a very kind of broad generic term, meaning that you're most likely to be correct based on the information and if you're able to best subtract your biases. <laughs> so if you're on the right side of a political issue, these questions and answers are so unbelievably complex. It's just it's a coping mechanism that we use to try to be able to communicate about them. And that's the problem. You know, if you're trying to communicate about the, the price of bananas at your local grocery store, then there's some there's a way that you can get to the kind of clear empirical communication that we've talked about before, where it's just it's a one to one to one. It's just here are the reference. There might be some spillage on either side when it comes to describing these things, because bananas themselves, you know, how ripe are they? What size are they? All that. How many come in a, in a bushel or whatever in a bunch? But when it comes to any political issue, any political issue you could possibly think of, you know, whether it's who you should uh, nominate for local dog catcher or anything else. It's so complex that we have to use these incredibly pathetic heuristics to try to break it down into something that's even remotely bite-sized for us to be able to talk about it and feel good about it because that's so much of what we are. So we talked about archetypal communication before where you have these prepackaged things, you know, it's like the, the idea of a mother, the idea of a community or a church or something like that. There are a bunch of prepackaged things that come along with those ideas, the idea of the hero's journey or, <laughs> or whatever. There are so many things already built into that. So that's a way that we try to communicate with each other because it can have a lot more information already built in. But when it comes to actually trying to communicate or figure out or discuss without becoming completely paralyzed by the fact that we're so tiny and incapable, these specific incredibly large and complex political issues, I'm completely tired of this binary cope that we have to go through. Where they say that, okay, well, there are two people here and we're talking about it. So we must have to find, here are the polls, here's the binary, uh, let's, you know, maybe meet somewhere in the middle that we can't really define and don't really understand. And then we both feel okay about it by the end of the conversation. So therefore we accomplish something. Like that is not the way that we need to be talking about these kinds of issues. We have to reframe anything that's complex like this. We have to reframe the way that we communicate about it. And it shouldn't be acceptable to do otherwise. 
And one of the traps that we fall into is that when we're talking about a particular topic, you know, it's like police brutality or anything else, we we do fall into some kind, some version of this heuristic so that we can try to talk about it and feel okay with the result that we come to, as opposed to really framing it in a way that understands that we don't have the capacity to genuinely be able to understand and communicate everything about this that would make it completely accurate, you know, whatever we're talking about. It needs to be a paradigm shift. Everybody in here, I'm working on this so we can completely change the way that we talk about complex issues. And I'm going to see where this leads. Uh, I mean, I can already feel like the heat coming off my brain right now. If you could, you could test the Fahrenheit's or whatever, <laughs> I'm sure it's just like way up here. So I'm not sure what capacity we actually have to be able to do this mixed in with everything else that we try to do as human beings. But uh, it, it really needs to change. We really need to find a better way to do this so we don't get on these cascades where we end up just snowballing into oblivion because we're stupid sloppy primates. It, it just, it can't be the case. Yeah, if that's what it's going to be, then I'm just handing the keys off to the AI once they get embodied in something, and that'll just be that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I really appreciate you listening to this. I know this is a long episode. Anybody who got here, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. And at some point, we're going to have a more back and forth discussion on this stuff. I'm going to get people in here. We're going to do some live stuff, and we are going to have some questions and the like and be able to ha make this a real discussion so we can really figure this out and frame this out. But like I said, appreciate it. Hope you have a good rest of your week, and I will see you on the next one. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.